receive what God has for you today. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Hope everybody's had a good week so far. It is, it is great to feel the change of season. It is so good to feel that. I'm, I mean, I'm just, I cannot wait. I've got my flannel on today. I'm just ready to go. <laughs> just, I'm here for it. Um, I wanted to give a quick announcement before we uh, really get digging into the content this morning. Um, we do, if you guys are familiar with some of the things we've been doing over the past com- about year and a half or so, um, we have an event called Freshwater that is going on. It's a worship night that we host at the Rogers Theater with other, um, other community members, other church members from different, different churches, different worship pastors, worship leaders, musicians from different places, and, uh, and that's going to be this Friday night we're doing that. So this Friday night at 7 p.m. at the Rogers Theater, so the historic Rogers Theater downtown. Um, come on in, the doors will open about 6.30, and it's going to be an amazing time. We always have a good time hanging out with everyone. There's a, they have a huge sound system in there, so it's real fun. Lots and lots of space, and so we have lots of people from different places come together. And just to get different people from different churches, because uh, we may be in different churches, but we are the body of Christ, so we're, we're all as one. So it's great to be able to gather together with everyone and do that. So again, Friday night, September 30th, 7 p.m., fresh water. It'll last about an hour and a half or so, and uh, it'll be a good time. So you guys are all welcome to come. It's all free. Uh, we don't charge anybody to come, so, uh, so come and be blessed for that. Okay, so you guys have remembered that uh, if you were here last week, you knew that we are doing a, a teaching series over the book of Timothy. Um, it's called Dear Timothy, and this is a letter that was written from, uh, from Paul to Timothy. This is a spiritual son of Paul's. A few weeks back, we were going through the book of Titus. That was another spiritual son of Paul's. And he wrote these letters specifically to these young men, these young ministers, these spiritual sons in the Lord, um, to encourage them and to equip them for what they were going into. uh, Titus was tasked with going into Crete and to ministering to the people uh, over there, making sure that they could could understand the, the truth of the gospel, the reality that they were living in, and the lies that they were being deceived by, and um, and he had quite, quite the task on hand. It was, it was pretty difficult, but it was an amazing thing that he was able to get sent out. And then Timothy was sent to a well-established church. So Titus was kind of sent to an area where it was full of a bunch of, uh, of, a bunch of Hellenistic um, thought, thought process. It was filled with a bunch of different um, people that would come in and go out. It's a huge trade center, so they had lots and lots of different belief systems um, that would come in and go out through there. So there was lots of different types of uh, philosophies and religions that they can kind of choose from, and so Titus was dealing a lot with that people group. Now, Timothy was going to a well-established area for the church, Ephesus. If you guys remember the book of Ephesians, that was written to that church specifically, and so Timothy was sent to Ephesus, to the, to the church of uh, Ephesus, to go and to um, correct some of the things that were happening. There was a lot of false doctrine, false teaching that was permeating through the church at the time, and Paul had gotten word of this, uh, this inaccurate teaching that was happening from these, uh, these multiple different groups of people. And so, uh, how many of you guys know it's good for us to have truth whenever we're learning about, about Scripture? Amen? And so it's important. So, so Paul wanted to send someone who he really trusted. He was able to travel with Timothy for quite some time. He got to know Timothy uh, when he went and, um, and, and, and met him and his, his mom and his grandma. They were, they were both very, very um, dedicated um, Christians. So they loved Jesus with all their hearts. They loved God with everything. And, and he was impressed with Timothy's uh, his fire, his gusto, his desire for, 
for more knowledge of, of what it meant to follow after God. And so Paul took him under his wing and was able to travel with him some and take him and, and teach him and instruct him and, and, uh, and, and train him up so that he could be a great leader in the church. And so then he sent them out over to the, to the church of Ephesus. And we see that there's a lot of things going on here. And, and what I'm going to do is we're going to start, um, I'm going to read just a couple, a couple verses um, right at the beginning of, of 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1 this morning. And uh, we're going to break down kind of the middle section that we have. I kind of glossed over it briefly last week, but I really want to hit it a little harder because I think that it's very important for us to understand some things. So verse 3, he says this, As I urged you when we went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may, be, uh, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths. Remember last week we learned that myths, uh, it was a way that people would, would attach certain attributes to gods to give them the, uh, uh, the kind of the free pass to enact in certain behaviors. And so it was, it was a false story about a god or goddess that would give them the ability to continue in sin. So if they said, if our gods and our goddesses are doing these things, then we also have liberty as worshipers of these gods and goddesses to go ahead and to do the same things that they do because this is what they permit. And so they were, these people were teaching myths about Christ. They were teaching false things about the gospel, false things about who Jesus was, giving them the ability to, um, to either oppress people or to walk into sin much more freely. And so Paul's like, we cannot have this. And so he said, um, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This is important. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. So if these, if these types of teachings, if you guys are encountering teachings that move you into more controversy, move you into speculation, move you into more um, uh, unpermissible behavior, then that's going to be something that does not advance the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't advance the work of the gospel. And so being aware of what you're learning and who's teaching these things, um, especially when, when it comes down to just listening to different, uh, different teachings, different preaching, um, anything like that, knowing who it is that's actually ministering is pretty valuable to you. It's pretty valuable. We're not just going to have anybody come into the church and just deliver whatever kind of uh, doctrine that they may feel is right, unless we know them personally. We know that we can trust what they say when they come and stand in the pulpit. That's why, it's, that's why it's valuable for us to have leaders and people who can have connections within the body so that when we have other people who can come and encourage us and encourage one another, that we know that it's, it's being spoken with truth and, uh, and that there's relationship there so that if there is error or if there is something that maybe is a little hiccup and something that that could be also addressed and corrected with love and not with malice. And so when we have people come, know that we, we are very... Uh, very confident in their ability to know and to and to dissect scripture and to be able to deliver that and so um, it's important to know these things so if it's if these teachings or these kind of myths or anything like that is actually moving you away from advancing God's work and cause you to just sit back in speculation and and just come up with all these controversies then it doesn't help anything that the gospel actually stands for which is advancing the message of Jesus Christ and showing people that there is freedom in Christ and introducing them to Jesus and so this, um, the, uh, God's work is advanced, which is through faith. The goal of this command is love. Again, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have now turned to meaningless talk. 
They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. This is important. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. We know that the law is good, and this is where we're getting into the meat of, of this from to this morning. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and, ir- and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that confirms the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So here's, here's a question that I want to pose this morning. Why did Paul use these specific examples when talking about um, all of these people who are misusing the law? Why were these examples used? Again, he, he mentions this. It starts in verse 9. For the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, or for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for the slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else that is contrary to the doctrine. Why did he use these examples in his letter? If you, if you guys are sending a message, anybody ever sent an email to somebody about a very important topic, maybe it's for work, maybe you had to dissect some specific things. I know that, that whenever I, um, now that I have a staff and I'm, I'm the director of my, my program, I have to put together for our meetings, I have to put together an agenda so that everyone knows what we're going to be addressing for that meeting, why we're going to be going over these things, and we'll start to explain some things more and more as time goes on. And so inside of that agenda, I'm not just putting the random words together and just delivering it to them. I'm actually delivering to them exactly word for word things that are, s- that are specific and pertaining to what we're going to try to accomplish throughout those next two weeks until our next staff meeting comes through. Things that, that we may try to accomplish throughout the rest of the year. All these things. But the words that I put together are very specific to our office and to what's going on with us here. If you write a text message to somebody, you're not just putting together random words or phrases. You're putting very specific things in there to get the point across that you're trying to relate to them. Otherwise, why are you sending them a message? Right? And so Paul is using specific words. I, I, sometimes, whenever I was younger, I would, I would kind of look through Scripture and be like, wow, they were just kind of pulling out different sin, and that's just what they wanted to do. They were just saying, these are sinful things. But what is the basis for why he brings out these specific sins? What is the reason behind some of these things? It causes me to go back. Because Paul mentions specifically that these people want to be, in verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they are so confidently affirming. And so what he's mentioning in his frame of reference, his, his comparison, side-by-side comparison, is with what? The law. He knew the law in and out, and this was where he was getting his basis from, um, that he wants them to be living and guiding their lives by the law. Not by some kind of wild concoction that these guys are trying to bring up that ends up oppressing people. So let's go through and, uh, and look at Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to read just a few verses through here. Um, this is what's known, if you are unfamiliar with this story, this is known as the Ten Commandments. So these were the, the ten specific instructions that God gave Israel whenever they were at Mount Sinai. So the ten Ten things that you would probably, if you've been uh, in kids' church, that you grew up 
knowing some of these at least, or, or you've been introduced to these in some form or fashion. Maybe you've watched a couple movies. Maybe you watched VeggieTales, and this is the thing that, that <laughs> showed you what the Ten Commandments were. But these were the Ten Commandments and things that the Israelites followed after time and time and time and time again throughout the remainder of their time. And so it starts here in, in verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words, uh, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents, for the third and fourth generation, for those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner, uh, foreigner residing in your towns. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then finally, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Ten commandments. There it is. So this is, this is really important for us to look through and to see some comparisons that we see between the Ten Commandments and the list that Paul has actually delivered to, uh, to the Israelites. The list that Paul gives is, is uh, known to, the, uh, to some commentators, specifically one that I, that I like going back and forth to, is the New International Commentary on the New Testament. Um, the, uh, the guy, Philip Towner, who, who wrote the commentary on this section, um, he said that this was known as a vice list, a rhetorical vice list. So to let people know of these specific behaviors and, and to personify this on people, to show them how this behavior is improper and incorrect. So instead of just saying, hey, you need to do these good things, it's saying, hey, notice these activities that are extreme and terrible that you don't need to be doing. And let's, let's put this side by side to the law and see how this compares with what God has actually delivered to us on how we're supposed to be living and conducting our lives. And so um, this technique was designed to, to exemplify these elements of socially and morally unacceptable behavior. It personalizes a slant that, that actually gives emphasis to moral character and creates a portrait of godless human activity that is precisely the opposite of the image of a Christian and characterized by love. So if you see in verse uh, verse 5 of 1 Timothy, he says that everything that you're supposed to be doing through this should be in love. Let's see. He said, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and good conscience and in a sincere faith. So the goal for all the things that we're supposed to be doing is love. And so he, he's saying here, he's like, look, look at these activities that we've mentioned, all of these negative things, all these sinful activities, and let's, let's put this against the activity of love through God's eyes. Are any of these activities that we've seen, are these, are these things that actually show God's love? 
And it's a very easy no when you start to look at these extreme behaviors, when you start to look at the way that these people have, uh, have displayed their actions. He's like, no, this does not show God's love. And it's very interesting. He actually gives four pairs of, of things. He gives six individual terms. And then a, at the very end of this group of sins, he gives a huge ca- catch-all phrase. And so the first half, it deals with sin against God. The second half deals with sin against human, humanity, against fellow man. If you look at the Ten Commandments, it's very similar. The first half deals with, with, with life expected on how we're supposed to love God. The second half deals with how we're supposed to treat people. And so Paul is doing a side-by-side comparison here, showing you that these are things that you're doing to dishonor and disobey God. These are things that you're doing to dishonor and to harm your fellow man. And so he's using this as a side-by-side comparison. Paul believed that the false teaching will inevitably lead people into this way of extreme sin because they move away from the actual law itself. Towner, the guy who, who, who wrote a commentary over this book, he, he says that they weren't allowing the law to correct people. They were actually using the law to oppress people. The Spirit of God will be the one that actually brings conviction to you in the midst of sin. It should not be man. And so these false teachers were using the law. They were taking the principles found in the law, and they were using it to conform people to their own will and to their own way of life. Instead of doing the opposite, allowing the law to be presented, allowing God's grace to be presented to them, and then having that be the thing that convicts them instead of just the person that was coming through. And so there, was a lot of, there were a lot of people who, who were very smooth in talk. They, they sounded very knowledgeable. They were able to stand up and to, and to give a presentation as though they were very confident in what they were saying. But Paul details very specifically in chapter 1 that these guys did not know what they were actually affirming. They didn't realize the, the gravity of sin they were allowing in the midst of their, uh, of their description of what the law was supposed to be for people. And so this is why it's important for us to go back and to know. Paul is not just making up stuff and saying, hey, I feel like this, this is just not good. He's saying, when I'm looking at the law, when I'm actually going through as a student of the word, as someone who's studying scripture, as someone who has made it a point to know it in and out, and as a person who is, who is a, a devout worshiper of Christ, I know, I know, I know that this is not the way that it should be. These people were not aware of what they were allowing because they were just flippantly saying things, flippantly teaching things that were oppressing people. But Paul, as a lover of Christ, as a studier of Scripture, could recognize the Spirit of God would jump inside of him as he would hear these reports of the things that were being taught in this established church. And he sent diligently Timothy so that people could be delivered from this type of teaching. And so we see this first half dealing with the issue of idolatry as it dishonors God, as worshiping something or someone other than him by disobeying his law. And so let's, let's break this down first. So he, he mentions lawbreakers and rebels. This, uh, this means the disobedient and the rebellious ones. So this, the, the root of this is lawbreaking. If you're, if you're a lawbreaker, that means that you are, not, um, you are not following after. You're actually disdaining the law. You're pushing it away, meaning those who are outside of the realm of God's law and God's protection from the enemy in the midst of that. Rebellion meaning the rejection of God's authority. And so these people not only were outside of God's law, but they rejected God's law. They rejected God himself. 
while they were following after their sinful behavior. This is idolatry in its essence because you are worshiping your own self. You're worshiping your feelings. You're worshiping your own desires instead of what Christ has called us into. Again, verse 5, he says that the, the essence of why we're doing this is rooted in the love of God with a pure heart. And so if we're going through our day-to-day just going off of what I feel, not knowing what God is requiring of us, then it's very easy for us to worship our own selves and worship our own desires and end up in idolatry, whether you know it or not, because we've been ignorant of Scripture. We've been ignorant of reading the Word. So it's important. this is why it's so important for us to know the Bible. We cannot just rely on, on us coming here on a Sunday morning and having uh, one of us come and, and, and prepare a message and then deliver that, and you're like, this is good, awesome. And you go home and you don't ever pick anything up and say, I can't wait until Sunday where I can learn something new. I, ho- I hope that you're learning new things, but I hope that you're also doing that throughout the week to where you're spending time with God and you're able to, to discern for yourself what's going on inside of your life because you can hear his voice because you recognize what his voice sounds like through reading the word. And so rebellion, meaning a rejection of God's authority. The second pairing is ungodly and sinful. These are often found together. These two words are often found together. And descriptions of behavior that is, um, that is very blatantly wrong expressing arrogant rejection of god if you are ungodly you are you are completely rejecting and pushing away god a defiant action and activity these are very this is very close-knit with being rebellious and the uh, the next pairing is the unholy and irreligious this deals with worship worship that's inappropriate to the worship of god that's profane and that's not consecrated and in opposition to the sacred norms of worship and behavior from, from their times. Irreligious in that it's a false doctrine or foreign or it's distant from God in itself. So when they are lawbreakers and rebels, they're unholy and sinful, unholy uh, or ungodly and sinful and unholy and irreligious. What this is saying is that they are taking everything that they're doing and they're saying that I'm going to come into the church and I'm going to tell everybody that my own uh, feelings, my own thought process is better and greater than what scripture holds and so i'm going to like i like i've mentioned before with the book of titus i'm going to take my own thoughts and my own beliefs and i'm going to impose it on scripture and force scripture to conform to how i feel like things need to go and by doing so i'm convincing everybody else that the way that i'm living my life is the way that you need to be doing this as well instead of taking scripture reading scripture and allowing the holy spirit to convict you of sin so we see in this next group of, uh, of sins that Paul mentions, we see that whenever we have this root of, of idolatry in the midst of our understanding of Scripture and the way that we, we communicate this to other people, then we don't just harm our own selves in this teaching, but now we start to harm other people, and other people start to become affected by this in a much greater capacity. And depending on your influence, it could be a l- much larger group of individuals that end up being hurt by the way that you're communicating the gospel. And this is what he says. This group, it says, those who kill their mothers and fathers. And he mentions murders right after that. So this dishonors the command to honor your mother and your father, and then also coupling in there with you should not, com- uh, you should not commit murder. This is found again. Remember, we just read this in the, in the Ten Commandments. You need to honor your mother and father, and you don't need to, you need to, don't need to murder other people as well. And so we see that whenever we're able to 
when we're able to justify in our own minds that it's okay for us to do certain things if you feel a certain way, even though the Bible may not specifically say that, it says something different, just because you feel that, it's okay. You feel justified in it, so go ahead and do it. That's when we end up in lots of error, and then you start to convince other people that it's okay for them to go by how they feel. It's okay. It's it, Be angry. Yeah. Be angry, and you just, if you get harmed, you just punch them back. That's fine. That's great. If you get real aggravated, you can do whatever you feel like to against them because you're justified by doing it. You have the right to. There's different opinions about what they meant by killing their mothers and fathers in this passage. Um, some believe that they were actually really killing their fathers and their mothers. Others believe that, that it was a, a complete dismissal of relationship and an honor system of, of keeping them um, within the family structure and, and honoring them in the, in the life that they've had and, and caring for them in the midst of that too. That there could have been some in, incorrect teaching that, that caused them to cast the elderly aside and to put them down and to, to cause them not to be, be cared for in any way. But regardless, he puts murder after that, after saying kill mother and father. And so there was some type of death that was occurring, some type of ending of life that was happening as well. And so to justify doing these things was completely and totally incorrect in the midst of what the law of God actually taught them. And then going on next afterward, um, they s he mentioned sexually immoral and then practicing homosexuality. Here's something that I want to point out. It, people are very quick to point out homosexuality without pointing out sexually immorality. We, there's a lot of people who are very quick in the church. That's, I'm just saying church in general, the, the body of Christ, that people are very quick to point out people who are struggling in homosexuality and in this, the LGBTQ plus movement. And they look over people who are practicing sexual immorality. A lot of people who are in practicing sexual immorality are very quick to point out the, the wrongdoing or the, the inappropriate relationships that we find elsewhere because it makes it to where their sin is diminished and not looked at as bad. But let me tell you, if we dishonor God, we dishonor God. We cannot elevate one sin over another sin. And again, we, we, we end up, in our even in our language, even in hearing that, many of us, if, if we're struggling with certain things, you could, feel co you could feel condemnation in the words of saying you're in sin. Let me reassure you, I'm not here to condemn you. I pray that the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart if you're falling into temptation and you're falling into illegitimate practice that should not be happening inside of your home, inside of your, your mind, whatever is going on. Jesus is very quick to tell us that if you even look at someone with lust in your heart that is not your spouse, then you've already committed the act in that place. And so it's important for us, whether you are outwardly practicing things or inwardly dealing with things, that we're able to go to God and we're able to repent of the things that we're going through. Again, sin is missing the mark. We cannot feel the condemnation of sin. We need to feel for the conviction that leads us to God. Condemnation always leads into a negative, depressive thought process and ideology about yourself. 
the way you think about yourself will always be self-deprecating if you continuously live in condemnation. But if you live in conviction, conviction actually lifts you up. It elevates you and places you where you're supposed to be. Conviction exposes and breathes life into you. Condemnation pushes you down and covers you in the mud. Just rakes you all over all that stuff. And so in the midst of this, the, Paul, was, Paul is praying and hoping that this brings about conviction in the lives of these individuals, not to make them feel condemned in the midst of their sin. They need, we need to be aware of what God is calling us into as believers and as followers of Christ. But if we're not aware of what he's calling us into, then it's going to be very hard for us to please God. And if we listen to the lies of the enemy and become condemned individuals, then we really are not living up to the expectation of what the gospel is really preaching. Because he has delivered to us freedom. He's given us hope. He's called us righteous. And so we cannot live in righteousness if we, do not ex- if, if we are not expecting to have conviction in our lives. In order to live righteously, we're going to have to en- endure conviction. And in that conviction, we'll be able to see how God will, will tune us and sanctify us and, and, and create us and mold us into the people that, that he's called us into. He's called us to conviction. Those who are practicing sexual immorality, those who are practicing homosexuality, things that seem and, and, and are even delivered to as being good. In Genesis, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. That's good, right? When, when two become one flesh, when two get married, they have now the, the gift and the opportunity to go together and to, and to create a family, to build a family. And in that, there's a, there's, a, there's a type of intimacy that you only share between one another. And that's the gift that God has given inside of that marriage. But outside of the marriage is the place where the enemy wants to try to attack. I, I heard someone say the other day, and I wish I could remember who said it because it was really good. But he said that the enemy will try to convince you to have sex as much as you can outside of marriage. But once you get married, he will do the opposite and try to convince you to have the least amount of sex that you could have. He will drive you to a level of cheap intimacy outside of your relationship with a, with a spouse before you get married. But as soon as you get married, he wants to drive a wedge between you two so that you are not intimate and you are therefore not as strong together because you don't share that intimate relationship with one another. He will try to divide what God has brought together. And before that, he will try to attach you to whoever and wherever and whatever so that you are not, so that you're not able to feel the beauty of that relationship that you have. And he will try to push condemnation on you in the midst of every stage of that as much as possible. And so to those who are sexually immoral, he's saying you need to look to the cross. You need to look to Jesus and say, is this from verse 5, is this something in the faith that I have in God, is the goal of this command, is this love that I'm doing? 
Is this in love that I'm acting out in this? Which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Do I have these things in the midst of this activity? I would say not. Those practicing homosexuality, th- this, is, this is another thing. He says those practicing homosexuality, not those struggling with homosexual thoughts. Listen clearly. Those practicing homosexuality, practicing in the activity and going forth and, and being indul- indulging in all these activities. There, there are, I know that there are, and I've, I've heard, watched interviews and gone through many different studies of different things, and I want to do a lot more because I feel like there's so much more still to learn um, of people who have struggled and maybe still struggle with same-sex attraction, but they do not follow after those things because they're persistently pursuing Christ in the midst of it, awaiting for the time for them to be delivered in the midst of that. And they are still mightily used by God. None of us are perfect by any means. There are, there are things that each and every one of us have that we're working towards receiving complete and full and total freedom in. And it does not mean that you are less of a Christian because you're dealing with certain things in your life. But it's the practicing of sin is the thing that dishonors God. Not the struggling through finding freedom in Christ. That's the beautiful part of, of Christianity, that we can, we can, in the midst of our struggle, we can still lock our eyes with Jesus and still move forward and still progress and still tell people how awesome Christ is in the midst of your struggle, but it doesn't mean that you are lesser because you're struggling. To the sexual immoral, immoral to those practicing homosexuality, and then he goes through to the slave traders and liars and perjurers, those who are practicing out inappropriate um, activity within the body of Christ. There were people who were who were dishonest, even as uh, employees to those who they were employed to. We'll get to that here in a little while, too, in this book. But they were treating their, their, their bosses, essentially. They were treating their bosses as though they were not their boss. Because, like, oh, we're equal in Christ. That's fine. I don't have to listen to you anymore. <laughs> That's not the way that we're supposed to be going by in our relationships with one another. If you're employed by someone and you said that you were going to work for them and you're going to do good work, then you need to be true to your word, and you need to have good work, you need to do well. And to those who are bosses, those who have, have a staff, those who are dealing with, with people who work under them, they have to also be acting out in love. The same love that is, that is pure in heart, that is good of conscience, right? So we have to be able to look at all these things, and I love that Paul put that at the very beginning of this, of this chapter. He said that the command is love which comes from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Many people have departed from this type of law, this type of understanding, this type of relationship, and it's ended up into many of these categories. And then I love that at the very end, he mentions this. He says, whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Paul mentions very specific things, and I love that he goes through and mirrors the Ten Commandments by saying the first half is is about your dishonoring God about your idolatry the second half is how you are coming against man your fellow neighbors these people that you're around and you're dishonoring them by 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 only going after what makes you feel good and not what helps them because any of these things if if you killed your mother and father guess what that was not beneficial to them that was not loving them (laughs) that was not having a pure heart that was not doing anything like that 
That means that we need to be able to have conversations, hard conversations at times with people who are above us. There's hard conversations my dad and I have had to have over the years just to figure out what we meant when we were saying certain things. But it was good that we had those conversations and didn't just hold those things in because then bitterness will, will build and it just becomes terrible. For those who murder, you may feel better because you feel like you got your vengeance, but that didn't do anything good for that person, for their family members, for anyone who would be around them. And, uh, and that was not something that would benefit society by taking the life of that individual. For the sexual, sexual immoral, you are now devaluing the, the, the person, this individual, by saying that I'm just going to get from you what I want, regardless of how it affects you. And so you were in, in that place, you were selfish, because you were taking from that person something that should only be given in covenant unity. And so you were cheapening them, saying that they're not worth covenant unity, but you just want to make sure that you have a, uh, a sensual encounter that made you feel good. Those practicing homosexuality, it's going against the grain of what, of what the Bible actually teaches for one man and one woman to come together. And biblical unity, something that actually allows you to procreate and to, to bring life. To continue a people who will, who will worship God and who will honor him. Feeling that your feelings and your desires overrides that of God. To those who are slave traders in the midst of the slave trade that they, that they talk about here because uh, remember in, in the book of Titus we talked about how the terminology of slavery was different than the idea and the understanding that we have here in the western world because that was more of an employment. They would employ themselves and through that they would call themselves the slaves or the servants of somebody who was very wealthy. Now if you talk about a slave trader, this was someone who actually would kidnap individuals and then trade them on essentially the black market that they would have there for a price. And these were people who were devaluing, devaluing people and calling them as though they were livestock or as though they were a product and shipping them out to different places so that they could gain financial contribution. That is sin. Because you are devaluing a person to be lesser than they were actually created. And that was in the image of God. So if you believe that the image, someone who is an image of God, deserves to be bound, to be sent off, and to be paid for a price, then you are no better than the people who crucified Christ. For the liars and the perjurers, those who would go through and they would get their way and manipulate other people so that they would be able to come out looking like they are in the clear. For those who, who speak improperly and untruthfully in the midst of what would be a judicial discourse. So if you were in, in court and you were standing on the stand, you were at the stand and you put your hand up, you know, you said, I do swear that I will say the truth, nothing but the truth to help me God, and you blatantly lie, then you are a liar and you are devaluing the opportunity and the ability for you to speak and for justice to be served. You are elevating your own opportunity to be made known or to be to be made aware of to other people. Could be for money, could be for status, whatever it is. But you are devaluing people in the midst of that. Every single thing. And then I love that at the end of it, he goes, and then guess what? Ah, anything else that you can put in that category. 
of not being sound to the doctrine. What is the doctrine? You have to go back and you have to look at the law, see what the law said, and, and in the law, interpret it through the eyes of love. The same way that Christ did. It's not enough just to say, I'm going to live a moral life. Although a moral life is wonderful. It's good that you can live within the society and to be a, a healthy contributor to society and that you're not a menace to people and you're not creating all kinds of heartache and turmoil in people's lives. Great for you. But there's more than just living a moral life. It's to have an intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To know that in everything that I do, just looking at the law, not just living a good life, but why is it that I'm doing this? What are the motives behind my heart in the midst of living a moral life? And it should always point to giving God the glory and the honor. The very first half of everything that we see. To love the Lord your God. And this is why Jesus, this is why Jesus, when he was questioned by the lawyer, what is the greatest, what the great, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know why that's so valuable? Because when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first half has to deal with honoring God, and the second half has to deal with loving people. <laughs> it encapsulates the whole law. And so Paul is bringing people back to what, first, what, what, the, God, what the, the Apostle John says is the first love. Bring them back to the first love. I might need to honor God, and I need to make myself right with God. And then I need to make things right with people if I've harmed and hurt people. And these are things that, that I want us to be very aware of. I want you to take a few moments. I know we're, we're a little over time here, but I want us to take a few moments right now. And I want you to really think and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. May, some of you guys may be very aware if there's anything going on inside of you right now that you've um, been needing to deal with and that you need to give to God and you need to ask God to, to forgive you for your, your uh, improper understanding of what you were supposed to be doing with your life. And ask God to just forgive you of these things. Lord, forgive me of the times that I've dishonored your name. Forgive me of the times that I have, I have made improper use of, of, of the law. For, for the times that I have rejected your law and rejected you in that process. Forgive me of the times that I have had inappropriate wor worship of you because I've been worshiping myself. Or maybe I've been worshiping other people, God. Maybe I've been, been, been laying down and bowing at the feet of other people because I value their opinions over what your preferences are for my life. Lord, help, help us in the, in the area of, of, of dealing with the multiple generations. God, for those of us who are young and dealing with, with, with those who are parental figures in our lives and those who are parents, Father, forgive us for not having a great understanding of how to live peaceably in that relationship. Lord, for those of us that could be on the other sides where you're more the mother or father figure that, that if there have been some rifts that we haven't been able to get over because we're caught up in our own thought process and our own hurts, that Father, we'll be able to lay those hurts down and we'll be able to bend those relationships with those who, are, who could really learn from our lives. Father, forgive those, those of us who have been harboring and holding uh, malicious thoughts about other people that we have been seeking revenge or desiring for someone to to pass just because they have harmed us in a specific way. Maybe we feel like that would vindicate us and validate our lives, but Lord, let them know Jesus. Let them know you. We ask you to, to, to permeate their hearts, to convict their hearts of things that they have done. And Father, forgive us for holding unforgiveness against others. 
Lord, for those who are practicing sexual immorality, those of us who, have, who are dealing with thoughts that are inappropriate, those, those of us who may be looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at on a, on a, on a weekly or daily basis, Lord, those of us who may be in, in, in a, inappropriate relationships where we are crossing the line within our, uh, our, our, our either soon-to-be's or maybe our, our, our boyfriends or girlfriends or whoever it is, Lord, those who are, who are practicing in the, in the pride movement, Father, I ask you that you just deliver them in Jesus' name. Lord, those who are struggling with their identity and what it means to be a human, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to follow after you in these, in these specific gender roles, Lord, that we won't be confound to culture, but that, Lord, we'll be able to find who we are inside of you. Lord, the truth will be open to them and that they will be, they will be, Father, that they will know community that is biblically based. God, I know that there's a lot of people in that movement that, that they're looking for, for someone to just validate them that they matter. And so they attach themselves to much of this movement because they feel like people care about who they are and all their quirks and all the, the, the oddities that they may have. So, Father, I just ask you that, that the church does a better job of accepting and bringing people in and making them feel valued and loved the way that they truly are because you made them, God. Father, for those who, who are oppressing other people, for those who are slanderers and liars, for those who are dealing with, with, with the inability to tell the truth, that, Father, that you will convict their tongue, that you will, that you will close their mouth, and that they'll be able to hear your voice ever more clearly because they will not be opening their mouth to try to make up all these lies, that they will understand what it really means to follow after you, who is the way, the truth, and the life, so that, Father, they can have the truth inside of them, so that they can understand what your word says. And, Father, whatever else that is contrary to the gospel that any one of these people could be dealing with inside of here. Lord, I pray that your conviction just illuminates inside their heart. Holy Spirit, move inside their mind. Give them clarity of thought. Put people in their lives who can also respectfully and lovingly call them out whenever they're struggling with certain things. Lord, thank you that we are a body of Christ and that we're not just an individual who's just seeking to follow after you, but Lord, that we can do this together. Thank you for this building that we get to come together and worship your name. Thank you for uh, my mom and dad for, for wanting to come and found this. Thank you for Pastor Ken for, for wanting to, to establish the ministry school even further to train and equip people. And thank you for the future things that we'll be doing so that we can learn and grow in your word. And Father, we also just want to hear your voice. We want this place to continuously be a prophetic community where we're able to hear your voice and deliver the words that you've, that you've spoken to us. Lord, so that people can be filled with hope, filled with, with desire for more of you. They can be driven to you more. Not driven to a gift, but they're, given, they're driven to the gifter. So we give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen. If you, if you were struggling with any of those things and you would like to have some specific prayer, you'd like, you'd like for either myself or Pastor Ken to, to pray with you. We'd love to sit here and minister with you for a little while. So feel free to come up. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's no condemnation. So we want you to be encouraged this morning. I hope that this message was something that uplifted you and that it caused you to think and to, and to really dig a little bit deeper. What's going on inside? Are we honoring God and are we, are we loving people in the midst of it? 
So let us go. Be rooted in love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. You guys have a wonderful, blessed Sunday. We'll see you guys next week.